Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and thanks for joining us today. We're coming to you live from downtown Johnson, Vermont, where we continue our series of listening to the victims of last month's flooding and tell their stories about how they're moving forward. First, we did Montpelier. Then we did Barry last week. And today, the town of Johnson in Lamoille County at the confluence of the Lamoille and the Gihon River, a town of more than 3,000 people that suffered huge loss and now looks forward to a long recovery. As we did on our shows in Montpelier and Barry, we're here to listen to the stories of the folks who live here, to understand what happened here, and what the town faces. We'll speak with town officials, business owners, and others who face the long recovery ahead. As always, we hope you'll join us with your questions and comments. And as always, you can join us by calling 244-1777, or you can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. You can, of course, listen to us live on the radio on AM 550 and our various FM stations online at wdevradio.com and on the free WDEV radio app. So let's set the stage. We're here in Jenna's Cafe. This is the brainchild of the of it, of, a, of an organiz- a nonprofit organization called Jenna's Promise, and it's a family uh, by the name of Tetro that lost a, a daughter uh, to uh, drug addiction. And instead of um, uh, descending into despair, they have created a nonprofit organization that uh, seeks to help those struggling with addiction. Uh, it includes a recovery residence. It includes it, it includes a cafe where from where I am broadcasting right now, and a whole host of other services going on. Uh, we'll talk to Greg Tetro, uh, one of the founders of Jenna's Promise, a little later in the show. A um, couple of notes, as always, when broadcasting from the field, you'll hear ambient noise. Uh, we have Mick at the counter who made my cup of tea and my fabulous. Everything bagel with egg and Swiss cheese. Uh, there's people coming and going. There's going to be some traffic noise, and that's the way we like it. It's the it's the bustle of town life and everyday life. Uh, we want it that way so you can experience what the residents of Johnson are experiencing every day, what they've been through. Uh, it's a lot, and it's going to be very very hard uh, going forward as it is for Barry Montpelier and a lot of these other central Vermont towns. Um, we are at the intersection of the Lamoille and Gihon rivers, which overflowed their banks. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a Montpelier guy, so I know exactly what happened in downtown Montpelier. I'm less uh, informed about exactly what happened here. So we've got two experts who are going to tell us exactly um, Most of the sludge has been pumped out of the Johnson sewage plant, uh, but the work there is really just beginning. 
as I read in the news and Citizen, every single electrical panel with lining the walls uh, has to be propped open and dried or replaced. Uh, that plant was basically destroyed. Uh, power was lost. Uh, crews had little choice but to continue releasing untreated wastewater into the river, estimating the rate of the release to be about 80,000 to 100 gallons a day. At least I read that. I'm looking across the table at the emergency manager who's nodding. Uh, so there's a lot going on here, uh, and we're going to get to it right after this first break. We're going to come back with Beth Foy, who's the chair of the select board in Johnson, and Eric Bailey, who is the village manager and during the flood was the emergency management coordinator. We'll be coming right back. Remember, uh, it's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your host, Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis, Vermont Viewpoint, and we are broadcasting live from beautiful downtown Johnson, Vermont. I drove up. I came up Route 12. Little construction, but no traffic jams. Uh, I thought about going over the Worcester Road from Curtis Pond in Callis. That road is closed still. Uh, there are all sorts of roads. I live in East Montpelier, and all sorts of roads are closed, uh, but I got here on a clean shot. We are joined uh, by Beth Foy, the chair of the select board in Johnson, and Eric Bailey, who is the village manager. Those of you in Barry or Montpelier are used to having a city manager, and I'm going to say that Eric Bailey is kind of the same as those guys. So uh, he knows exactly what's going on with the guts of this community. But Beth Foy and Eric Bailey, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So, Beth Foy, let's go back a month. What exactly happened here? Mm-hmm. Um, you want me to hold this? No. Um, well, I'll start with the day of. So we had been receiving warnings. We knew that we were going into flood warnings, and we have an emergency management team um, that's headed up by Evan Patch, who is our emergency management director. Um, and Eric and I are both on the emergency management team. Eric is the coordinator. Me is the information officer. Um, and Evan started making phone calls, letting us know that we were in a warning situation. We were expected to flood. The flooding um, could be pretty significant. We didn't understand fully what that meant at the time, um, and we ended up calling an emergency management, uh, an emergency select board meeting um, the afternoon of Monday the 10th uh, at 4.30, and we all got in a room, decided to declare an emergency, and then the fun began. Um, so that evening, Eric ended up packing a bag and staying overnight in the municipal building, Eric um, Bailey, the manager, the village manager, uh, and Evan and I also stayed and planned to spend the night uh, at the municipal building just looking through the flooding event. Um, at the time, we expected it to peak at 11, 11 p.m. Um, overnight, we quickly found that the peak was rescheduled for 2 a.m., and that was not the peak. The peak right. ended up being for the height of the floodwaters around 7 a.m., I want to say. Uh, it was far beyond our original time frame. Um, and height. <laughs> and height, yeah. So originally the expected, I don't have the exact number of the original expectation, they, they modified the height level to 18 feet 
Um, the, the normal flood level is 13 feet for Johnson. Um, and around 11, 10 p.m., 11 p.m., they, they upped the amount to 18 feet to peak at 2 p.m. 2 p.m. rolled around, and we saw that the um, trend line was still straight up in terms of the rising river level. Um, and made the call that this is not going to end anytime soon. You know, we have some serious things to consider. So just backing up into the night a little bit, we ended up really starting starting to close roads. Um, we had our road crew out. Johnson has two, I should stop by saying, Johnson has two entities, the town and the village. Village residents are also town residents. Um, and village residents, and we have two forms of government, the select board and the village trustees. So those of, those of you listeners who live in Waterbury are familiar with this uh, split in municipal government. Yes. Yeah. So our emergency management board is made up of both entities. Um, our town crew, anyway, was going through rounds and making sure that they knew how our roadways were faring during the during the rain and also flooding, and the rain itself did end up closing a number of roads. Um, so we started our road closures between 9 and 10 o'clock Monday night. Um, in terms of back roads, mostly, it, it mostly wasn't the main corridors. Um, and as we, as we progressed into the night, um, the level of water rise, was it was pretty clear that it was going to continue to spike, and we ended up getting rescue evacuation calls around 11 p.m., I want to say, and they didn't end through the night. We ended up um, having the fire department um, rescue 28 different households. Total number of people is unknown. Um, around 3 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m., Evan and I went out just to walk to see what the water level looked like close to the municipal building, which is off Main Street, right on Route 15, um, next to the fire station. We walked towards Sterling Market and where the Guyon River crossing is on Route 15. That was flooded at that point. Um, and the water level was quickly rising. We actually watched the lapping um, down by the municipal office, and we're talking about the lap being between two and three feet when the water receded, it was pretty flat. So the the lapping of the water was about two to three feet, which told us that the river was just going to keep rising. Um, at one point around 3 p.m., we decided we needed to check the water level at the municipal building parking lot and found that the water level was about halfway up the parking lot. Um, we decided we needed to check every 15 minutes and 40 minutes later, we realized we hadn't checked every 15 minutes, uh, and the water was almost up to the it was up to the top of the parking lot at the at the end of my car, which is the closest parking lot to the parking space to the door. Um, and we made the call that we needed to leave uh, because if we didn't leave them, we weren't going to leave. Mm -hmm. um, Eric Bailey, uh, tell us we're looking out at Main Street in in Johnson. What was it like here? What, the street. Where you're sitting right now, the basement was fully flooded. Yeah, they managed to keep it off the first. They didn't get to the first floor, but the basement, the basement here is fully flooded. As you go towards Railroad Street, it just gets deeper and deeper. The uh, the Sterling Market, which is owned by the Parmelo Agency, they they did a phenomenal job. They they, they worked 
so hard. They had a crew of between 8 and 11 people here with equipment, sandbags. They put up, um, like, board barricades, bagged them in, had pumps going, because they'd been flooded before. And they did an amazing job of trying to beat this flood. However, the floodwaters went up to the top of the glass on the flood, so above your head. And it was just it was just too much. And tell us about the sewer treatment plant. Well, we uh, the sewer treat the sewer treatment plant is in the floodplain. Um, in '94, it was built. It actually flooded. They did remediation efforts, put in floodgates to all the doors and, and such. When uh, on Monday they they installed all the floodgates. Um, chief operator left at about 10 p.m. because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to get out the gate because the entryway is the lowest part. We were not, we, it was isolated by floodwaters until Wednesday, so all the way through Tuesday. The, uh, the emergency generator was completely flooded. The, the entire first floor of the operations building was completely flooded about seven feet. Um, as, as you mentioned before, um, all all processes were destroyed. The laboratory was destroyed, the offices, all the PLCs, electronics, pumps, motors, all, all that's left is the concrete shell. And now we're actually seeing, so the, the, the SBR building, all the big tanks in it, is made of poured concrete. So that, that shell's doing fine, but the Operations building is um, in uh, architectural concrete block. It's weeping still. So there's waters from eight feet up coming out of it. There's cracks showing up. So now we have to look at the structural integrity of that building. You know, structural integrity and possibly of mold growth because it's still weeping water. Uh, that's okay. So the sewer treatment plant, the municipal building, what other, let's stay with what happened. What other damage? I'm thinking about homeowners, other businesses, et cetera. What, what else happened? Um, other impacted uh, businesses were the banks, two banks, United, the Union Bank and the Community National NA Bank, both right here in the village um, on either side of the Guyon were both flooded. Um, they're still cleaning out. I believe they both have some sort of operation happening right now, but it's minimal, um, and they're, they are doing cleanup. Uh, Union Bank may not be open, which the community is. Um, the other impacts were um, the, some of the, rest, the restaurant across the road from us, Marcel Salsa, had flooding. Um, I believe they had basement flooding very specifically. We have a number of landlords. So most of what flooded um, was residential. We also had our library building, by the way, I don't want to forget that, that flooded as well. Um, and our full collection is taken out right now. We don't, we can't use the library building at the moment. Um, is that because of moisture levels in the air or is it because the, the it was flooded and it's it, got, still got mud in it? It flooded up. Um, the library building is normally flooding during a big flood event in the basement, but this time it made it to the first floor. So they did have to tear out flooring and cabinets and remove collections. Um, 
When I think of Johnson, I think of Johnson Woolen Mill, and I think of uh, the Studio Center. And um, how did they do? They're up on higher ground? Um, the Studio Center did have flooding in a number of their units as well, um, most of which were lower level, um, but they did have flooding, and they are still remediating. Um, and the Woolen Mill was lucky because the Guyon didn't have the same blood levels as the Lamoille. Yeah. Um, so where the Guyon and the Lamoille meet, the Guyon did back up, and we did have flooding locally on Main Street, but beyond Main Street, the United Church flooded as well. Beyond the Main Street area, though, um, even though it's only a block away, properties up the Guyon were less impacted, um, and I don't know of any actual flood events where significant damage occurred on the Guyon, um, just above Main Street. What other damage, uh, Eric? Homeowners? A lot of homeowners. Um, there's there's homes that are, you know, to the point that they're not, you know, the people are just, some people, some homes are being just abandoned. Um, there's a lot of trailers that have been pulled out. Um, they're, they're destroyed. There's, there's a lot, there's just, there's a lot of work and they're still not habitable. Yeah. One, it, it's funny, the deeper you get into recovery, the more new issues pop up. I just found one out this week. There's a renter that, you know, she got rescued that uh, the next day by a bucket loader, you know, from her second floor down on Railroad Street. And she just got her electric bill, which was, you know, she hasn't been there since the 11th which was double her normal electric bill. Well, you know, her landlord's been running dehumidifiers and fans and all that stuff, and it's like, now we got to figure out how we work this out. Because right. it's not really fair for the, uh, you know, the, the renter to be paying for all that remediation cost to an electric bill. Um, on back in the infrastructure, our, uh, well, actually, I'll them all good news that people have been waiting here. As of last Wednesday, our wastewater treatment plant, in a, in a probably together temporary basis, is gone, is back into full treatment. It is. We, through the heroic efforts of the wastewater staff and contractors putting in you know, countless hours, really, you know, and working against the tough supply chain, they got, you know, temporary PLCs, motors, controllers, all that stuff, hot-wired safely, but, you know, not through the normal channels, and the, the facility is running it. It's producing a very, very clear effluent. I'm, I'm actually amazed at how beautiful the process is under the conditions that it's being operated. Uh, let me reintroduce uh, my guest. It's, I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and we're talking to Beth Foy, the chair of the select board in Johnson, and Eric Bailey, the uh, village manager. Um, a question for both of you. Okay, so the waters have receded. There are cars driving through downtown, but what faces you at municipal government now uh, when things kind of look normal, but it's pretty clear that the infrastructure, the guts of the community still have a long way to go? What, fa what do you face every day? <laughs> 
I face a lot of people. Uh, so there, you know, in all aspects of our community, people are the thing that matters, right? So um, I talk to a lot of people. I do my rounds in impacted communities, and if I see people outside, I'll stop and talk to them and ask what they're impacting, uh, how, they're, how the flood is impacting them, and if they need help, like how can I help direct you in the place that you can get the help you need. So I think from a community standpoint, we can and should continue to support all things debris removal. It's a big understated effort. It took about half of our volunteer organization time in terms of the government volunteer to get debris removal out of homes so that it was safe. Uh, and by the way, it's not, it's still not safe for many homeowners at this point. Um, and we just need to help direct people to the places where they can get help, in my view, and be a be compassionate when emotions are high, because emotions are going to be high. Um, the process for getting assistance is frustrating, it's confusing, and the first time you try is never going to get you what you need. Ultimately, you have to keep trying. And when I say that, I'm referring to FEMA very specifically, but I'm also referring to the other support services, um, such as our Lamoille County um, Health Services, whether it be health and well-being services. We have a lot of people out there that are trying to assist with um, places to live, food to eat, clothing, other supplies that you need to rebuild your life. Um, FEMA assistance, when you apply the first time and you get a denial or you get a check, you can appeal and should appeal because appealing ultimately typically results in more. Um, it's confusing and complicated. So I think that the best thing we can do is beat the drum of communication for the people in our community. Yeah, this is what the governor is saying all the time, which is call 211, because even if you're not damaged, it gives FEMA a record of um, of what happened. Erica, I have a question about FEMA. You have FEMA training, et cetera. After all the disasters we've had in this country, whether it was Irene or uh, Katrina in New Orleans or whatever, we still have, uh, uh, FEMA still has a reputation of being uh, uncaring, overly bureaucratic and uh, not helpful. And, you know, I don't know why that is. Do you have any speculation about why we can't sort of get our act together in this country around FEMA? That's a loaded question. That's a loaded question yeah. with all sorts of politics. But regardless of like, it's not about Republican or Democrat. It's about whether it was Katrina, uh, George Bush was president, uh, Obama was president for yeah. several disasters. We just can't seem to get our FEMA act together. And I frankly don't know why. The, uh, so my training is the uh, FEMA ICS Instant Command System. So that's, you know, the actual emergency operations. And that's handled by locals mostly. And that system works. It does. But the recovery is where, you know, FEMA comes in and they, they work to get the reimbursements done. And the machine is it's too big. And it's, it's not just a federal problem. So the problem is, well, one of the one of the problems is many problems. I mean, it is a big federal bureaucracy. It's its own massive machine that stumbles over its own rules. But it also is the the, the joint between the federal 
federal agency in the state. So you apply for this money, and FEMA is, you know, approves it or approves part of it, and they send that money to the state. Yeah. And then the state decides, oh, yeah, you, you dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, okay, here's your check. Yeah. So the process is slow and cumbersome. Yeah. And it's a federal slash state bureaucracy problem together. And a reminder, which I learned when I had a FEMA guy on the show, FEMA does not, they reimburse governments and they help homeowners. They do not reimburse small businesses. And when you look at the faces of the small business owners, when you tell them that you can go get a 4% loan from the Small Business Administration, they want to kill you. And I, I know you're experiencing that, right, oh, Beth? You're nodding. Oh, that is very true. Yeah, and and landlords fall into this gap that is even wider than small businesses. So, yeah, it is a problem. Beth, we want to go back and talk, go back to the day and keep talking about uh, what happened and what and who was damaged. Yes. So we made the decision to leave the office building around 345. Um, it was, uh, we need to pack up right now and get out. Um, I left first and I left in my minivan, um, from route 15 municipal building, um, pushed through some water, um, in the parking lot a little bit, not a ton, just a little bit, and got onto main street trying to get to one of the side roads, which is very close to the municipal building up route 15, a little bit further. And, um, turning onto that road, I quickly realized that I was driving through feet of water, not inches of water, and I needed to step on it and get onto that hill. Um, Meanwhile, so I was headed up to the Vermont State University where we had set up with them to have a shelter. We expected one or two people maybe, um, and then learned quickly that it was going to be more than one or two people. Um, But I went up there, connected with the security and the lovely people who supported us um, and made sure that we had enough beds for more than one or two people uh, and that we had at the very least a table that I could take names in on. Uh, And I called a couple people to help with volunteering in that shelter set up initially. But it was simply beds. It was not water. It was not food. Um, I'll let Eric fill in the after I left the office building part of it, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more. About sure, it. go ahead, Eric. So yeah, the uh, when the when the decision to go to the alternate EOC at, at the college campus was made, EOC being Emergency Operations Center. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And uh, Beth took off ahead to to get it set up, and also because her vehicle was low, um, we tried to get the safe open, could not. Eben went and picked up our town clerk who has the magic fingers with the safe and brought her, actually drove her up to the door because of the waters right across the lawn. Uh, got her in. We got the safe open, moving as many land records as possible upstairs. Um, same time, I was grabbing any radios, off supplies, stuff that we needed at the EOC. And, and thankfully put the, the, the main server up on a table that was sitting on the floor. And as, the, you know, as they were finishing the land records, Evan told me to leave. And about the third time I, I listened to him, I was grabbing our five-gallon jugs of water. We had no idea what we were going to need, so I was just grabbing all of it. Yeah. And I, so I finally left. 
waited. Luckily, I was wearing, you know, 18-inch rubber boots, waited in my truck. Um, as best I drove through some water in the parking lot. But by the time, you know, this is half an hour after you left. And within half an hour after she left, I hit the same small section of Route 15 going to Gould Hill, which, is, like I said, is probably 60 yards. And in a really tall four-wheel drive truck, I was pushing over three feet of water. And it was it was high enough that I was like, I was worried that I was going to be stepping out and saying goodbye to my truck and wading to the edge. There was flow, but it wasn't enough that I couldn't wade. Yeah, but sure. Luckily, the truck didn't die. As soon as I got on the dry ground on Gould Hill, I called Evan and told him, you need to leave now. Yeah. And and they did. And we all made it up there. But it was uh, it was rather tense. But to double up on what um, what Beth said, the, the college was phenomenal. That not only did they provide um, the shelter and the beds, they, they set us up with a perfect room for an alternate EOC, and their facilities and security crews were constantly checking, is there anything you need? What can we get you? What can we do for you? It was, it was phenomenal. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the show that the, the, the water treatment plant is in the floodplain, and it was uh, it's operational now, but you, uh, what's the future for that building? That is a great question. So it's operational asterisks. It, it does work, but it's not. It's working in a you know temporary billing billing twine yeah. you know operations. Um, that's a great question. It all it all comes well, it all comes down to what FEMA calls the BCA, which is opposite of what business calls it. They call it the benefit cost analysis versus the cost benefit analysis. And, you know, what mitigation monies are available, they, they you know, they have an idea of maybe building a castle wall around it. Um, I almost don't think that'll work because of the gate. Uh, the possibility of going up a story. Well, the problem with that, well, this. There's numerous problems with that, but the new problem with that is we're not sure of the structural integrity of that building now with the blocks being full of water and, and numerous cracks showing up. And then the best but most expensive op- option would be to move it uphill, put a pump station, you know, basically at the top of that drive, returning that whole area to floodplain putting the wastewater plant on a property across the road and uh, you know, rebuilding the entire plant. That's, of course, that's a three to four year option. Once you How much does that cost? Initial engineering estimate, um, which didn't, they didn't have the information from the rivers folks that we need to actually move the pump station from being right where the wastewater plant is to up by Route 15 was $27 million. So I would, I would estimate that we're talking actually ex- in excess of $30 million. Sure. And and that would be paid for by who? <laughs> That's another great question. Um, as it stands now, the FEMA recovery efforts, it's a 75% FEMA um, contribution um, for, the ca- for the classification of both Johnson governments. It's a 12.5% state match. Um, and then, of course, the remediation monies are handled differently. Sometimes those are up to 100%. It's, it's a very complicated thing, and it's also a matter of, uh, well, us continuing to uh, 
talk to the right people about maybe getting more. I mean, once the uh, once the people at the state have the hard numbers on the size of this emergency as far as government damage, um, which I've heard both 112 and 114 million is a threshold, and then we have the government has the ability to ask the president to go to a 90 percent share versus 75 percent. The president doesn't have to. And we're also very concerned that we're no longer the news cycle that Maui is. You know, we're not sure where that's going to where that's going to fall. Well, there's this twelve billion dollar appropriation that's making its way through Congress that Peter Welch has been talking about, which would cover Maui and Vermont and and not to mention others. Uh, I guess now what we're asking is, well, oh, we got a, a listener call. They asked about the Scribner covered bridge, Beth. I'm not sure what the exact question was, but the Scribner, co- the Scribner co- uh, covered bridge is on the Guyon up, uh, up Route 100C, uh, off our side road up on Route 100C, and it fared well. As a matter of fact, it had a lovely moat around it. Wow. <laughs> so it flooded around the bridge. The bridge itself is fine in terms of no damage from this flood event anyway. And Scribner Bridge is on our um, – before the flood event, we had an ongoing um, effort, engineering studies and the like on Scribner Bridge, and we'll continue to pick that up as soon as we have capacity to do so. We, we were talking about your grocery store, the Sterling Market, um, and we noticed this in Montpelier, too, where, you know, the bookstore flooded and, and uh, the home goods store flooded, but Shaw's did not. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, thank goodness that the grocery store survived because if you lose your food source, it's a real problem. Uh, did you lose Sterling Market at all? Oh, Sterling Market was completely completely inundated. Um, it's been gutted. The whole building is, I mean, all the walls ripped out, all the flooring's ripped out, and they're, they're trying to put the building back together. Um, the Secondhand information is that AG does want to, you know, come back. We 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 are all be- hoping, you know, beg, you know, praying that that is true because it's absolutely key to this community. Um, it's not not just ours. Actually, there's a WCAX article a week or two ago about how much it affects communities like Belvedere. Um, it's you know that now they're driving all the way to Morrisville. Yeah. It's not just us. It's, it's, it affects this community greatly, but it affects a lot of the surrounding rural areas as well. Yeah. In order to in order to rebuild there, the water line was um, just below the height of the door. So if you if you walk by, you can actually see on the glass um, the water line. So it was significant. Um, and the rebuilding isn't going to be easy. It, that is a, a location that continues to flood. Um, and while there seems to be interest in, in rebuilding there, um, from both the owner and also the market, um, from what I gather, and this is third hand, not Ooh. direct, <laughs> um, that I think even if that is the case, there will have to be um, significant mitigation. That being said, the market is really critical to our community, not simply in terms of basic need and food source, but also it's a community gathering place that Plaza in particular um, is where you see your neighbor. And 
And while we have community on our residential streets, because people are helping with um, um, mucking and gutting out homes and that type of thing, um, after we have that community cleanup effort, it's going to be different. And we don't have that gathering place um, that you just run into the person that you haven't seen in a week or two weeks. Um, so that is a concern also. Uh, so to the both of you, what what lies next? There are huge we I'm asking this question to Montpelier. You, we have a city council and a city manager, and I I wonder whether they whether it's fair to ask them to take on this recovery effort. It's almost like you need a special task force that's that's charged with coming up with a recovery plan. Do you feel a little alone and isolated, like it's just you and you're going to have to do all this? This is a lot beyond just running this community. Um, it's a lot. Um, both the uh, both the town and the village have each hired, you know, a single, you know, a consultant to help. That's that's an expert in filing stuff with FEMA and, and getting those things done. But even so, it's still the the additional. Um, administrative and staff time is um it's huge yeah. and it's these are communities that you know it's it's one of the you know lower income communities in the state and we already run a, a shoestring staff we got you know staff the staff is already very lean and now the uh the expectations are are much much more um, and it's yeah it's a lot and the the the, the, the problem that no one sees is is the money. So FEMA takes a long time, and it doesn't cover everything. And so on one hand, we have this huge short-term extra expense on top of budgets that were already razor wire budgets. And our income stream is reduced because our brand list is smaller. People just they don't have the money to pay their bills. We've put in, you know, like I, I've got um, late fee forgiveness calculate, uh, programmed into both the water and wastewater bills. Um, no, no shutoffs on voluntary, no shutoffs on any of the utilities. We have an extra 30 days to pay property taxes before there's any penalty. So all those things are trying to help our people have been impacted, but they they're also, you know, make it more difficult on top of the extra expenses to actually keep the government flow. The other thing I want to just add to that is that, and that's, and I very much support what Eric is saying, and that impacts our staff directly. And then there's a whole other level, which is the people who volunteer and are appointed government, which I fall into, but I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about um, our justices of the peace and our um, our boards, obviously, but then we also have other community members who are either appointed to, to a position or they just volunteer their time out of the kindness of their heart. Those people are few and far between, and they're very dedicated to our community. Um, this is a huge burden when it comes to things of that nature. Um, a good example of that is our select board was meeting twice a month, and we've moved that to four times a month. We're meeting every Monday. And that's just the time that we're meeting at a board meeting. We're also doing work outside of those meetings 
constantly. Um, I know that myself and a couple of other board members in the select board and also on the trustees, um, we step away from our lives to put our put effort into these types of, we're going to have to, by the way, but put, to put effort into recovery and what it's going to mean and what we need to do right now, because there's a lot we need to do in any given moment, something new changes and we need to have an approval to buy something or hire someone or um, what are we going to do about the municipal building? We don't have an, an open office right now. Um, so there are a lot of aspects of all of this. And I, uh, I actually was asked by one of the uh, state Senate committees just yesterday what it means to local government in small communities where we don't have, it's not a city, it's not a city government. And I said, we need, we need the state's help with this. We're going to need help with project management. We're going to need help with coordinating some of these bigger efforts that we simply can't handle in terms of people hours. Uh, Eric, there's going to be a debate about dredging rivers. Mm -hmm. uh, the other side of that coin is we have to let the river go where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And we've got to mitigate existing buildings. And when we build new affordable housing, for instance, it's got to be built higher. Um, where are you on that? Do you, do you have a, 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 a position on dredging? It comes up all the time. And uh, it, it almost splits between some of the old timers who say dredge the river and it, it's too easy to say it's the environmentalists on one side and the, and the old timers on the other, because I think a lot of the new science is about let the river go where it's going to go. You can't really stop. It. That makes sense. <clears throat> I'm, I guess I'm somewhere in the middle because I'm, 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 I'm a practical person. I'm also a bit of an environmentalist. Um, it's, it's why I live with them all. You sound like most Vermonters. And. I think that there's somewhere in the middle that we could do some targeted environmentally, you know, sound dredging in certain spots. And I think it would help the river. Um, the river's getting more and more shallow. Um, that's tough for trout in August. Well, not in August like this, but, you know, yes. when, when the river's super low, where do they go to stay cool? You know, large holes are, are great havens for, for fish to cool off in midsummer. So... I think there's, I think there's, you can find a balance in there, mm. and it's we've got to get everyone to the table and not defensive. I would, I just want to add that the town has a number of flood mitigation efforts that we've been working with different groups on over time, and some of which is about taking some of the curves in the river because we have pretty significant curves in both the Lamoille and the Guyon, and making sure that we have um, dedicated area for uh, the Holmes Meadow is an example, but for that flood mitigation, so there's a plane for it to yeah. spread out onto. It wouldn't have necessarily impacted our last flood. It was just too much water and too big. Um, but in other flood events, that type of mitigation will help, and we'll have more properties available for that as buyouts occur. Um, Beth Foy, Eric Bailey, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you filling us in. Okay. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with other guests from Johnson in just a minute. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.
Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and we're coming to you live from downtown Johnson, which arguably suffered uh, the worst damage uh, from this flood. I know my stomping grounds of Montpelier have suffered an, an incredible loss. Um, but when you look at the pictures of Johnson and you look at what uh, these folks have suffered, it is, um, it is truly catastrophic. The, the main drag in town is alive, uh, but the side streets are, uh, are suffering. Uh, the homeowners are suffering. And we have three more guests to talk to us about this. We're, gonna, we're joined by Jeff Butler, the executive director of the Johnson Health Center. Joey LaHoulier, who's the local farmer who suffered immensely from the flood. And we've got Greg Tatro, who is uh, the founder of Jenna's Promise, where we're coming to you from. We're coming to you from Jenna's Coffee House, and I'll get this wrong, but it is Jenna's Promise is the nonprofit that Greg's uh, family set up in memory of their daughter who they lost to drug addiction. And they just had a big open house this last Saturday, which we missed, should have been here. And you've got all sorts of other events coming up. So, Greg, let's start with you. We're sitting in your coffee shop. Uh, you, you're really just a guy on a backhoe, right? Well, I guess. Uh, don't run the excavator as much as I used to or, or I would like to, honestly, anymore. But uh, that's where I started, you know, shaking hay and running a rate and hand shovel and uh, uh been there 41 years now so beginning to wonder if my time is in past but uh i'll give it another year or two what where were you on that monday when the flood came right here watching the uh water come up the steps here at the cafe uh jeff and i were down to the medical center uh, uh about two o'clock in the morning moving stuff around we thought we had it covered but uh we were uh, wrong obviously and what are you doing today it's it's four weeks later and this is a long road ahead right yeah it is you know it's basically four weeks four or five weeks of our life has been diverted in a way and uh trying to get things fixed up get things organized uh, a lot of our teams working with FEMA and other ways to raise funding. So it definitely definitely took about four or five weeks of our life and just kind of shook it up. And uh, so everything that we had planned on doing now is flood-oriented. You know, that work's still waiting for us when we're ready, but, uh, but we're, we're going to be okay. Joey LaHoulier, uh tell us about your farm and what happened to you when it flooded. So we own the Suffolk Farm on Route 15 in Johnson. Um, Tony's been farming now for over 25 years. We do about 35 acres of uh, certified organic vegetables. Um, we have a farm stand, um, and we wholesale through Deep Root Organic Co-op. Um, the flood that came in, within eight hours, it took 75% of our crops. It took 50 years' worth of infrastructure, including 13 tractors and a barn full of everything we need to run our business. 
Are you on the Lamoille River? Yes, we are. Okay. Um, I'm having trouble processing exactly what you just said. You just said 15 tractors. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean for you? You're a month into this, and now you've got to look ahead and balance a checkbook. Uh, what does that mean for you? So the tractors, our community, the water was on all of those tractors. Um, but we have some family members that came in two days later, drained all of them, re-put back in oil and fluid, um, and got them back up and running. However, anything that's been flooded is not going to run properly. So we spent the last month, you know, changing starters and continuing to work on them and order parts. And um, we're not balancing a checkbook right now. We are living day to day, making sure that we um, just take every step we can to get back to some sort of business that we can run. Um, we did receive um, funds from our community, um, and that has given us almost like a line of credit to be yeah. able to continue. We're still paying. We did lay off some employees, but we do still have some employees that we're able to pay to help us clean up and to just sort of get any crops that we have left um, grown and weeded and and eventually pick so that we have something to sell this winter. I know there's a there's an issue around crop. I have Dog River Farm down in Berlin next to me who grows for Whole Foods. There's an issue around crop contamination and what USDA and the state will let you sell, what's contaminated, what's not. Can you ex- take listeners through that process for you? So it's very complicated. Yeah. So I, I trying to bring you from A to Z on that process is you don't have enough time. Yeah. However, you know, one big general rule is if that vegetable was in the flood water, it cannot be sold or eaten. Um, so that's why we lost at least seventy five percent. But we do have higher we have levels of fields. So we did our winter squash was up on a upper level. Yeah. Uh, we have beets that were on a, a left like a higher level ground. Um, we don't plant turnips or rutabagas until after the flood. We had UVM come out and do soil tests independently on their own, and then we did our own soil samples um, and sent them in. So so far we've had two soil samples that have come back um, that are very positive for being able to replant. There were no high levels of heavy metals, which is the big yeah. big thing. Um, so I know that's not bringing you through all of it, but that is the, the rule right now is we have gotten the go-ahead to go ahead and replant what we can. However, we have a very short growing season here, uh, so there isn't much that we can do. Um, but there are a few things, and we're going to do whatever we can with the equipment we have and with um, the people that we have. Jeff Butler, you run the health center in town. Yeah. How's the, what's the health of this community like, both mental and physical? Um, I mean, we are seeing a lot of walk-ins up at, kind of pivoted. We're housed up at Jenna's house right now, 117 St. John's. Um, we've had more walk-ins the last month than we've had quite a little bit here. Um, but we are able to continue to offer help and we're pivoting. And Did you, so the health center is closed? And you, um, did you lose equipment? Yes, we lost all of our equipment. Um, you can imagine what would be in your primary care office. It was ruined in this flood. Okay, so Greg Tatro, you've lost the health center. You've lost your grocery store. You've lost 
some of your farming. So there's your food system. Uh, what? How, where do you start? Well, you just start by getting to work, you know. And, um, we're going to rebuild. Uh, these folks are re- resilient. Uh, I know that Joey and Tony that own the farm, they're some of the hardest working people you'll ever see. They'll get through it. Uh, but they could use a little help if uh, there's uh, somebody out there that knows some funding for farms. Uh, maybe they could reach out to the Footbrook farm and uh, and help out some. Or uh, I don't know what kind of other help they need, but I know that it's uh, it's a real kick in the pants, that's for sure. But we'll get it. You know, it's just going to take time, determination. And, and, you know, you can't give up. I mean, there was a time with the health center. Uh, we just got that up and going because uh, Don and I own that. We, Jeff and Carolyn use it, lease it, and uh, we just got it up and going in November. And we had it, you know, it was a lot of work. And uh, you go down there and look, and it's destroyed, basically, uh, a good portion of it. So, you know, I thought about tearing it down. Go ahead. I thought about tearing it down and throwing it in a dumpster, but uh, the first week or two, I was pretty discouraged. But uh, you know, we're Vermonters. We'll we'll get up. Our guests are uh, Jeff Butler, who runs the health health center here in town. Joey Lahulier is a farmer, and Greg Tetro is the founder of Jenna's Promise. Uh, Greg, could you take us through? Uh, I hate to do this because you've done it a thousand times now, but could you take us through Jenna's Promise, what it is, and how it started? Well, it's kind of simple, really. It's all about a safe place to live and a safe place to work. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch more that goes on top of it. But that's the root of it because people coming out of uh, substance use issues or we take people from incarceration quite often also that have substance use issues. Um they need a safe place to live. And then, you know, you can't let these folks can't work in a bar. I mean, you know, that's like throwing them to the wolves. Not that they're good people running bars. Don't get me wrong, but it's too much for them. So we've got a couple little businesses here on JP's Promising Goods and then Jenna's Promise Roasting Company. That's that's where our, uh, our residents start working. We have a workforce development coordinator that teaches them, you know, how to get back into life. And uh, it seems to be working pretty well. Not everybody's quite ready, but uh, the ones that are uh, are very thankful of what we're doing. I got to ask you, though, uh, let me let me stereotype you as an old timer who likes to lay pipe and uh, drive an excavator. Yeah. How did you develop the skill and the vision to create what you've created here? Well, you'd rather be on a tractor. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd rather be in Costa Rica somewhere hanging out on the beach, but yeah. So, you know, uh, it was all the things that we saw missing when Jenna was struggling. Yeah. Like, you know, getting a job, getting, trying to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning, you know, feeling worthy. A lot of these folks, they don't feel worthy. They feel like they're, you know, useless or nobody cares or nobody believes in these folks. And, and we saw that with Jenna. And so, you know, I've, I've worked hard most of my life. And if I'm grieving, I go to work because I don't want to deal with it, right? So 
so I go take my mind off it. And these folks are the same. Once they become uh, in recovery, all the stuff they did the last year or, two, year or two when they were heavily into substance use comes back to them. Like maybe they stole something or they said something to a family member, and now they've got to deal with it sober. So we have a lot of supports for those folks here, and uh, most of them do pretty well. Joey LaHoyer, uh, how do you come back from this as a farmer? So every day is really right now just putting one foot in front of the other and dealing with with the situation that happens to be at hand that day. Um, this winter, Tony and I will definitely sit down and do some planning um, to try to be more, le- or I should say, less dependent on taking out lines of credit. Um, you know, most farmers, not all, but most farmers have to take out what's called a line of credit at the beginning of their season so that they have the, the funds to um, pay payroll and buy seeds and um, buy fertilizers. And that way, then when the, the produce is ready to sell, you pay that line of credit back. And one thing that we're finding or one thing that's really hindering us is that we took out that line of credit. We grew everything right before it was ready to sell. It was gone. So now you still have a line of credit that you have to pay back. And um, you have no product. And you're, you're a CSA farm, right? We do CSA. Some CSA. We do retail because I have a farm stand right on site. But you're not filling those orders. Not exactly, no. And we also wholesale through Deep Root Organic Co-op, and yeah. just like Don River. Yeah. Um, so we are doing the best we can, but that that has to be paid back. So one thing I want to look forward to is how do we how do we stay in, how do we extend our season um, at the farm stand or through CSA or however it is, so that we can depend a lot less on that line of credit. Um, honestly, that's as far ahead as I really thought at this point, but I'd like to have the farm stand open from Mother's Day to Christmas. And right now it's more end of June to mid-November. Yep. Um, so those are some of the things that we're thinking about, but until I can find ways to purchase equipment, fix equipment, um, and get back to square one, it's, it's going to be a battle yep. to start next year. We can get through this year. Because I'm buying in produce from all of our local organic farms, so I can keep the farm stand going. Um, but that's not going to help me pay off debt, and that's where we're, we need to get to. Jeff Butler, you run the health center. Um, can we talk about mental health for uh, a minute here? You, you see uh, oftentimes the, the bleaker side of a community. Um, what's the mental health of this community right now? Um, you know, a lot of people are really struggling right now. I think it's taken a long, a lot of time to kind of process um, what's happened. Um, the first couple of weeks were kind of everyone was in overdrive, uh, yeah. running on adrenaline. Uh, now things are kind of settling in. Uh, I do believe that we'll see a, a bigger uptick in uh, intake. Um, once we see that, you know, we're preparing for it, um, and we will be prepared. But but your health center is shut down. Our health so, center is shut down. So how are you operating? We are operating out of a back room at Jenna's house. Um, actually, Carolyn started um, 
back there in Johnston, so we kind of come full circle. We're still able to see people in person. We're also able to utilize telehealth, um, which is something that we do use quite a bit anyway. So yep. um, we're able to kind of seamlessly move on. So if someone comes in with a broken leg or, or a mental health emergency, what are you doing? Well, a broken leg, we're going to send right over to Copley. Right over to Copley, yeah. Uh, mental health, um, we can get that process and intake started right off. Um, yeah. We have a great team. Uh, Carolyn Butler, my wife, is a fantastic, compassionate provider. Um, we make time for people, and we'll continue to do that. An old buddy of mine is the CEO at Copley, and, uh, yeah, Joe Wooden. Yeah. Yeah, he knows how to run a hospital. He's run a lot of them. So, yeah. so you send them right over to Copley. Oh, Broken Lake, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're a small clinic. We're not equipped to set a Broken Lake. Yeah. Copley does a great job over there. So, Can I ask everybody, um, I come from Montpelier, which, you know, to a lot of people, it's the big city and the governor's there, and, and they get a lot of attention. The legislature's there. Um, this is different here. It's smaller. It doesn't have the wealth uh, buried in the hills the way uh, Montpelier does. Is there any, I don't want to say resentment uh, from from this community to that community, but do you ever get a sense of feeling forgotten uh, by state government, by the Fed, by Congress, the White House, et cetera, or do you not have time for that? Well, I don't think there's, we don't, you know, we're, we just want all communities to do well. We don't have resentment. Uh, Johnson, you know, we are who we are. We're out in the out in the sticks some here, but, uh, you know, people are trying to help. The government, they can only do so much. You know, FEMA can only do so much, and they have rules. Uh, their rules have been in place for decades, and they have to follow those rules, you know. Uh, we've had a... The governor's been through town. Uh, Peter Welch has been through town. And uh, I think Bernie might have came around here, I heard. I didn't see him. But, you know, they're trying. They they do care. Um, and, you know, we're doing the best we can. But, you know, I always say we we got to take care of what's in front of us and not worry about Montpelier or Barry. They'll take care of themselves. Yeah. And, and we'll do our best to do it here. I, there's something that goes on. I, I did the show last Wednesday from Barry from Nelson's Hardware and uh, on Main Street, and Bob Nelson was there. Place was just a, a, just flooded and a disaster. They were open the next day by 11 o'clock, uh, selling sump pumps, and and you could see it on his face. Just as Jeff was saying, the you get through that first week of adrenaline. And then you hit a wall, and you got to go home and go to bed for a couple of days. But then uh, they that whole staff is back in that hardware store, and they are working like the devil. Uh, Joey LaHoulier at the farm, literally tell us, what are you doing today after you leave here? I want those a couple of days in bed that you were just talking yeah. about. So I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Um, but you've hit that wall? Yeah. You have? I have. Um, yesterday, so... Really, I was exhausted by 8 o'clock at night. I didn't want to keep my eyes open anymore. Really, what I my job on the farm right now is really keeping our farm stand going. I yeah. cannot afford to really pay people to work there, so I really need to do most of those hours myself. Um, but I'm also doing all the human resource things that the farm needs 
Um, but my husband gets up every day at 5 a.m., whether it's to answer emails on his phone or just run from one piece of equipment being down to the other, running for parts or trying to call for parts. Or, you know, we still have staff, so he's managing them. Like, we just wake up in the morning and run until we are ready for bed. Right. And how long can you keep that up? Well, until it snows. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what we'll need to do and what we will do. Jeff Butler, you're going to have to pay a house call out to that farm and uh, take care of the mental health of these people. We'll we'll be there. We'll show up when we're needed, for sure. (laughs) Uh, We... I just can't, you know, you, you look out at the street here, uh, it's now pouring rain, and things kind of look normal. Uh, and it masks, and the same true is in Montpelier and Barrie, it masks the the huge expense that's coming for everybody. You can't raise property taxes in this town to pay for all this. Greg, how are you going to deal with this? Well, we're going to keep going. Uh, it's... Uh it's kind of a tough situation for a lot of people. I think the folks sitting at this table, we're going to be okay. Um, Some of the folks that got flooded had nothing before the flood and what little they had, they lost in the flood. Those folks are are suffering. You know, they're living in tents. They living with friends They're Some of them are probably packed up and left permanently, but uh, it, when you have nothing and then you take everything, you have lots of nothing. And uh, those are the folks that we think about more than than ourselves, honestly. We're going to get it. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And just quickly, in about 30 seconds, can you, t- the people that we do forget, homeless people, mentally ill people, people living in tents, people who were evicted from motels uh, recently because the legislature and the governor decided that was the best thing to do. They're out in tents and now they've lost the tents. Where are those people now? I don't. I don't know. I haven't seen too much around Johnson, so uh, I'm assuming they're maybe headed towards a bigger, bigger yeah. population, Montpelier, Burlington. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but uh, but it's tough on those folks. Yeah, you know they uh, they were kind of lost in hope before this, and then you know you get crushed, and uh, it's it's tough. Tough. It's tough to see, tough to watch, and tough not to feel for people. Yeah. Uh, even Joey here with her farm. That's a big hit. That's a big know? hit. Greg Tatro, um, has this ever happened here before? What was Irene like? We didn't get hit with Irene too bad here. Uh, the last time the water was this high was the uh, flood of 1927, which yeah. was historic, honestly. And uh so we didn't expect to get water in the basement of this coffee shop because it's, it's never happened since then. And, um, Jeff's building down there. We thought, well, maybe we'll get six inches or a foot of water in there. And uh, there was four feet of water in that building. So it was, uh, it was the worst flood since 1927 in, for this town. Irene did a lot of damage in other parts of the state. But for this town, I think it's the worst since then. I wonder... Um if we could talk politics for a second, we uh, I had Beth Foy and Eric Bailey on uh, and they live in a political world more so, I think, Joey, than you do. We seem to have be no longer bickering about 
climate change and some of the other petty political issues that we argue about because whether climate change is man-made or whether it's this or that or Democrats or Republicans, uh, it kind of doesn't matter when your field of crops is underwater who caused it or who's to blame. And uh, do you do you agree with that? Yeah, I don't really think that you can bring a political issue into that. Um, I think climate change is, is, all, is definitely going to be a big topic for anything like this that happens. Um, I think that we all need to understand that we can't depend on one flood or another flood or a 50-year or 100-year or 500-year. I think that we're seeing that we just can't. We have to always be ready for the next thing that's going to happen. Um, I don't yeah, I, you're right. Climate change, all of these little things that we were talking about don't seem important anymore, and they're not something I'm, I'm thinking about at the moment. But when we get to winter and we have more time to think, um, some of those will come up. And I suppose politically, you know, whichever candidate can address some of these issues in a real way, in mm-hmm. a way that can help farmers and people with houses in the flood plain. And, you know, there's no easy answer and there's no politician that is going to be able to fix it, but somebody that can really try to figure out like crop insurance for is one thing, you know, we do not have a good crop insurance to buy into. Um, So that, you know, is a great thing for somebody to take on. Um, That would be Senator Welch, who's on the Agriculture Committee in the Senate and crop insurance. When you say that word, strikes me as just incredibly boring uh, to a non-farmer. However, it is a massive program, a federal program. And if you're cut out of it, it's a big deal for you. Yeah, it's a really big deal. And in the Northeast especially, there is no, there is not a program that fits the small diversified farm center around here. Um, Governor Welch Welch's office, Senator Welch's office, was sent somebody yesterday. His name is Tyler, and he is working on something that might actually make sense. Um, I don't know how far into the process it is, um, but there are people that are working on it. And um, I really look forward to something that will really help all farmers. Um, Joey, there's a, uh, I had the executive director of NOFA on the show a couple of weeks ago. They do have a, an emergency program that you can donate to, and they are giving grants to organic farmers. Is that right? Yes, it is. And, and we have already received um, a grant from them. And NOFA has been absolutely incredible during this process. They really know their organic farms and know what they need and know what they need to do to help them. Um, and I am so incredibly grateful for them in this crisis because they really have been amazing. They, somebody from NOFA is usually emailing me at least once or twice a week to ask how they can help and what they can do. And that farmer emergency fund, I received that check within 10 days of applying for it. So um, they, they've been wonderful and a real resource. Greg Jadro, can you – now it's really raining outside – anybody has to leave, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, you're, uh, I'll, call, I'll call you again an old-timer. Um, how's this community different from when you were a kid compared to now? Well, I grew up in Waterville, up 
I'm up over the hill here, but we used to come to Johnson and, um, well, we had our own pharmacy back then. Or you could go in and sit to the, at the pharmacy bar and get a, a fountain soda for a nickel. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, the old grocery stores, uh, these folks that are in here now are doing a great job, but they were just different. The town had more going on. You know, we had a talcum mill here and we had Parker and Stearns, who was a lumber uh, resource. Uh, we had mills. You know, people used to go bring their logs to Mr. Manchester and he'd saw them up and sell them. A lot of those uh, businesses are gone and uh, it has made a difference. Uh, right now, I think Johnson for the last five years or maybe more is, is in a rebuild. Uh, we're trying to find direction, uh, what's going to work for our little town right now because the big manufacturing jobs, the mill, the the calc mill, all those things are gone and will stay gone. They're gone forever. So we're, I think we're trying to figure out where we're going. Um, Jenna's promise. We've bought, uh, like four or five different properties that were abandoned. This, this building here was abandoned. That's we're sitting in right now. So we feel like we're doing our part to rehabilitate, rehabilitate people and our part to rebuild, help rebuild the town. You know, it's a different place. Uh, um, and, you know, back then, uh, everybody knew everybody back then. And now we don't know very many people unless unless you come to, like, the coffee shop and you meet people. Or Tuesday Night Live, they do a heck of a job over there doing things. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a great little town. It's just we're trying to find direction and get business back in and, and then draw people from other towns that want to come here and visit or spend a little money with us. Well, if you're going to get back on your feet, it's going to be on the shoulders of all you folks. So, Greg Tatro, Joey LaVoyer, Jeff Butler, thank you all for joining us and telling your story. I know it's not easy, but uh, the, we're doing all the best we can, and we're happy to be here to just to shine a light on it. So thank you for telling your story. And thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you No problem. Mm-hmm. We're coming to you live from very rainy downtown Johnson, Vermont, in the third of our shows, uh, going right to the center of these towns that have been uh, severely affected by the flood. Uh, And we've talked today to the chair of the select board, and we've talked to a local farmer. We've talked to the head of the health center. We've talked to Greg Tatro, the founder of Jenna's Promise. And we're right here in his coffee shop. And uh, we're now joined by, I've already forgotten the name. Rick Opperly. We're now joined by Rick Opperly, who is a resident of Johnson right down there on Railroad Street uh, that was really affected by the flood. Uh, Rick, thank you for joining us. So where were you on that Monday when the flood happened? Uh, Well, on the Monday, uh, we didn't really think that much about the fact that it was going to flood because we've lived on Railroad Street for 34 years. We've been through floods before. Uh, I kind of keep an eye on the river to just make sure of things. Um, and uh, we uh, stayed up till about midnight. I went over to the uh, the market and checked with the store manager there to see what he knew. And he said the river was going to crest at 18 feet at 8 o'clock at night. We walked back thinking that the river wasn't going to come through the the market parking lot 
And about 1.30, my six-year-old granddaughter woke us up, and I said, I'm going to go out and check. And within that hour and a half, uh, not only had the river crested and flooded the parking lot at Sterling Market, but uh, it actually started filling Railroad Street. I told my wife, let's get the cars out to higher ground. And we came back to the house, and within a, an hour or so, the, the house was uh, surrounded. And uh, my wife took my granddaughter to a little bit higher ground, and my grandson, who's 17, he and I stayed in the house uh, for another hour or so. We tried to put some things up on top of chairs, and we put a rug on top of a couch. But we tried to do a little bit of floodproofing. And finally, he said, Pop, the water's coming through my wall. Uh, the cellar hole filled up in maybe a half an hour. And the the rise, uh, actually what it is, is the, the Guion River can't get into the Lamoille fast enough. So it backs up in that little stretch between uh, Main Street and the Lamoille River. And, and it kind of came out behind the library, uh, came out across the road to the apartment building. And within uh, within an hour or so, uh, we we had uh, ankle deep water in the first floor. We ended up by the end of the next day, we had over 40 inches in the first floor of our house. So, and so, where what is the situation at the house now? Situation now is that uh, all of the uh, circuit breaker was in the cellar. Uh, so the electrical outlets were submerged. The, uh, the circuit breaker box needs to be replaced. We have no electricity. We have been running generators to try and dry out the cellar. Uh, it's, an old, it's a 200-year-old post and beam house. It's a stout house. It's a great house. Uh, it's just unfortunately with climate change and things that it's uh, in a bad location. Are you living there now? No, no. Uh, Where are you? Uh, we're about five minutes away. One of my uh, colleagues offered us a place to stay until October 1st. So we're looking in the area for a three-bedroom home where we can... Uh, my grandson's uh, set to graduate from Lamoille Union next June, and my granddaughter starts first grade in uh, about two weeks at Johnson Elementary. So, so uh, is the house a total loss? Can it be recovered at all? Well, right now, um, I would say we're at about 80% in terms of uh, property damage and personal losses. Uh, I spoke with FEMA yesterday. They were suggesting elevating my property uh, to maybe get it out of the flood water. But when we were in the flood in 95, we had two feet of water in the house. And uh, this time, like I said, uh, 40 inches is what they measured. Uh, we took out all the sheetrock and everything back to uh, four feet. And uh, it'll be a year probably before we can get back into the house if we, if we do get But out. you intend to, to get back in? Well, we're weighing our options. You are? Yeah. yeah. My wife and I have been there for 34 years. We... Uh, We've kind of naturalized the acre of property because we're surrounded by income properties with apartments, uh, gravel parking lots, uh, pavement, and we have created kind of a, uh, a green space in the community. Um, and uh, we are considering uh, one of the mitigation options is that uh, the state would uh, buy the property, they take down the building, and they would uh, keep the 
the land in green space uh, in perpetuity, I think is the word they use. That's right. So that might be an option, but, you know, right now we have to kind of take things one step at a time, one day at a time, and, and try to – the most pressing concern right now is actually housing for our uh, – so that we can uh, keep our grandkids in, in school. Let me introduce our guest, and who I'm, I've had so many names, I'm blanking. Rick Opperly. Rick Opperly, and he, um, his house was flooded on Railroad Street in Johnson during the flood. He is living elsewhere. Um, we had Jeff Butler, the uh, head of the health center, on, and I asked him about the mental health of the community. This is a blow. Uh, I live on fairly high ground in East Montpelier, but I have a lot of friends downtown Montpelier who were really destroyed. What's it like mentally to face this? You know, there's the adrenaline of the first few days, but then you've got to deal with the reality of everyday living. And that's hard. Yes, it is. It's a struggle. Um, in fact, um, <clears throat> like to say, um, last weekend, uh, my wife and I, uh, we always go up to Lake Eden campground uh, to, uh, to uh, watch the uh, Perseid meteor showers on August 12th, and we went up there. It was also coincidentally, uh, my granddaughter uh, has a birthday, February 8th. Uh, she she said, "Well, that's not fair. You have a summer birthday. Uh, my birthday is June 13th." And she said, uh, "I want a summer birthday." So we created this thing called Half Birthday, August 8th. So we we went to the lake, we camped out for the meteor shower, and we had a, a half birthday party for my six-year-old granddaughter. We had friends up to the lake, and we, we've just been trying to normalize things as much as possible for the kids during this, this phase right here. But like my grandson, his bedroom was on the ground floor, so he lost all of his clothing. He was able to put some of his important stuff up on the shelf in the closet. Um, but, uh, you know, he's struggling. Uh, and what's important to uh, grandchildren is really important. Yes. And it may not be important to us adults, but whether it's a superhero doll or a badge or a favorite hat or whatever. So anyway, um, he's doing well. Um, we did manage to say that he has a couple of electric guitars. And uh, so he's playing a lot of guitar now for mental health, I think. Uh, he also works at Craft Family Lodge he, on the weekends. He's in housekeeping. And uh, he's been going to work on a regular basis. And uh, so we're, we're just trying to... I'll keep things as normal as we can while we figure out what our options are. Uh, how do you assess the overall town and it's a pro how their how the town itself is responding? Well, the thing is that uh, the flooding itself was very situational. Like where we are on Railroad Street has always had a puddle in front of my house, and I've had conversations with the trustees and the select board about mitigation about that flooding issue in front of my house and uh so and and it's a it's an ongoing situation but it's sort of the low point on the road um as far as like down the road you can go down the road uh 10 houses and and people were high and dry um it really is kind of a, a situational thing but where people were impacted it was devastating yeah and, and we realize that other people are much worse off than we are um, so um, overall 
um, the community support after the flood, the initial phase, was amazing. Uh, people are still checking in. I have to go to my house today because there's a volunteer group that's going to come and uh, do some sanitizing work in the house. Um, they're going to leave town next week, so uh, we're going to try to connect with that. But um, it's uh, overall, it, it's been amazing the uh, the support of uh, of the businesses the, and the community. What do you think of when you think about when you weigh your options for what you're going to do? whether to come back to this house or whether not to. What goes in Really way too soon. Way too house. soon. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, every day things could change. We could hear of a house uh, nearby uh, that might really work with our plan to keep the kids in school. Um, I work at the Norway School. I've been there 23 years. Um, it's a one-mile commute to work. Uh, my friend Floyd, Floyd Neese used to work there. Yeah, Floyd was... Uh, was our executive director for, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine years, maybe. Yeah. Um, so. Well, well, Rick Opperly, you're great to join us. I know these are hard stories to tell, but uh, we really appreciate you helping us get the word out about what's going on here in Johnson. So thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks for coming to Johnson. Oh. Get our story out there. My pleasure. Uh, that is our show for today. Uh, we it, it, it is truly a, a profound experience to come to Johnson and to these towns and to try to tell these stories, and we're going to keep doing it. I'm open to uh, suggestions about what town to visit next. I'm thinking about Hardwick myself. And that is our show for today. My thanks to all of our guests in Johnson and at Jenna's Cafe, Beth Boy, Greg Tetro, and all the others, including Mick at the counter for the tea and the egg sandwich. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. And, of course, you can listen live to the show. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'll be back Friday from 9 to 11. We're going to talk a bunch of politics locally in Vermont and the federal level. We'll be taking apart and explaining the fourth indictment of former President Trump. And we'll be talking to Secretary of State Sarah Copeland-Hansis about her latest commentary that's making the rounds and her approach to climate change and resilience. As always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation, my garden, and everything else on my mind and yours. And again, uh, thanks to everybody in Johnson. Uh, we are truly honored to have been here. Uh, and if you haven't been to the Jenna's Coffee House, you should come. Uh, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on here. And uh, and it's really a place that everybody should visit. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by uh, Greg Titus today and all the folks at WDEV. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Wednesday. Uh, I'm sorry, this Friday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.